0: Good evening. Um, hey, everybody. This is Rish Outfield, and... It's not a great story. No, 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 no. no that's, uh, when I said hey, everybody, I was, it wasn't a call-and-answer thing. I was just welcoming you to the Rish Outcast. I am Rish Outfield, and I am going to continue talking about this Writers' Conference that I came back from today. Now, a little voice inside me said, well, hey, dude, you can't do two episodes about your writer's conference. That, that's not cool. But look, I have two episodes, two story episodes in a row going on right now. Why can't I have two non-story episodes in a row going on? And like I promised, there's a fake Sean Connery song coming up. So I can't remember what I was talking about last time. I think I talked about Ted McGinley, and in my head it was just really funny seeing if I can refer to Happy Days or Ted McGinley or something like that in my episode description. The second day of the conference I had some work that I had to get done. My laptop won't hold a charge. I'm trying to think of the last time I tried using it without plugging it in, and I want to say that it was about seven minutes before it died. So it, there would be no point in even bringing it to something like this. So I, but I decided to do it on my phone. And the first panel that I went to was four-part pacing. And it was talking about cutting your story into four parts. The first fourth sets up the rest of the story. You've got to have like a buffy beginning, where it shows a conflict that is not the main conflict. You plant seeds to prepare the reader. He said that it's the most important part of the book. The second fourth puts the characters on a false path. The quest begins. The quarter ends when the main character realizes the true path that they're supposed to be on. And then he said that this is the most important part of the book. The third fourth sets a character on the true quest. The internal and external dilemmas collide. A belief that the main character has changes, there's a ticking clock introduced. This is the heart of the story. And then guess what he said? Yep, most important part of the book. The fourth fourth is the major revelation, the all is lost moments, the lesson is learned, high tension, a false success, and then the true success. And and I couldn't help but think about my own writing while he was talking about this. I was thinking of 10,000 Coffins, which is the book that I was finishing up to publish at the time, and I thought, do I have this? Do I have a false success? Do I have an all-is-lost moment? Do I have a main character whose belief changes? Do I have a ticking clock? It was really interesting. I, I, I wish that the guy hadn't kept saying this is the most important part of the book because it undercut whichever part of the book actually was the most important. But, but well, probably the point he was trying to make was... That all of the book is important. So, the second panel that I went to was about uh, finding a compelling opening. And they were talking, you know, that the start of your book is important because if they don't make it past the start, you're screwed. Uh, one of the people was an editor from a publisher, and she said, I have written 30,000 rejection emails or letters, I don't know. She probably was old enough to have done letters. And she said, can you think about that for a minute? 30,000 people would fill up a a pretty good-sized town. And I would say that 90% of the books that I have rejected were because of something in the first two chapters. I knew a chapter going in. She said, sometimes I know on the first page that it is a pass. And I don't go into it hoping that this is terrible and that I can reject it. I go into every manuscript hoping that this is the one that I purchase, that I want. And so this is interesting to me. Usually when I give a sample of my work for audio, I'll try and pick something from the beginning of the book. I remember an instructor at some point saying, for writers like you... Rish Outfield, their beginnings tend to be really, really strong. And the middle and end of the story is much weaker because for a writer like you, you've started many, many stories and you've only finished a few. So you have way more practice in beginning a story than you have in carrying it through to the end. So I really wanted to pay attention during this panel. But as I said, I, I was trying to get some work done and my phone kept giving me oh it was so frustrating uh, i would time out what i was trying to do i mentioned a ticking clock in the last panel and this literally had a ticking clock where it would give you a five minute window and the website that i was working on was so crappy that i could not get the work done just conference that i came back from today before the five minutes was ended, through no fault of my own. And for once, it wasn't even my crappy phone. It was the website. I was so frustrated. And here's here's another thing, though. I should have set it up with this. This panel about the beginnings was so full that there were people lined up against the walls and sitting on the floor. And the instructor said, hey, the fire marshal won't let people do this you know you can't be lined up on the walls or sitting on the floor i'm so sorry all the seats are filled you guys have to find yourself a different panel so i was sitting there and i was sitting in between two strangers and i couldn't help but think when about 40 minutes had gone by before i finally finished what it was i was trying to do that these two people next to me were probably rolling their eyes thinking this a-hole, came in here and took the chair from somebody that wanted to be here, and he spent the entire panel playing on his phone. I feel bad about that. I could have gotten some good stuff out of this panel, I feel. I want to say that it couldn't be helped. It could have been helped. I needed to make better priorities. There was a children's book artist, uh, an illustrator who was one of the keynote speakers, and I chose to duck out of that keynote speech to finish my work and get some food because I felt like that was the most expendable panel. But in the back of my mind, I I don't know. I wonder if I could have gotten some really good stuff out of that. I'll never know. I mean, anytime you have two options and you choose one, you can't know what the other option was. When I would go to cons uh, with Jeff or with Big, sometimes we would split up and each of us would go in a different panel. And it was kind of a, a, a comfort to know that he could tell me what happened, what they talked about in that panel that I missed. But it's never quite the same as being there especially if it's a really good or funny or memorable panel. The next panel that I went to after lunch that I wanted to talk to you guys about, and this might be entertaining even if you're not a writer, was called Sexy Monsters. I I don't know why I said it in that voice, but I think I told you, in fact, I know I did, uh, that a couple of years ago I went to a something romance. I want to say that it was... Out of the Ordinary Romance or something like that. And I went to that panel not realizing that it would be about women that fall in love with Triceratops or the Loch Ness Monster or a Zuni fetish doll or a Yeti or, you know, a giant or Steve Buscemi or an ogre or, you know, a horse, a serpent. But this, I hoped, would be that same panel. It was Sexy Monsters. And it it was interesting. Big Anklevich wrote a story about a dude who falls in love with his car. And they become lovers. And I never read that story, but I always admired that Big wrote it. Because I don't think I could write that. I, I have trouble with romance with a man and a woman falling in love. This panel started with... The moderator saying, "Okay, everyone on the panel, introduce yourself and tell us why you're awesome." And let's see if I had been on that panel, that would have been a deal breaker for me. But not everybody is like me. I aspire to be Ted McGinley. One of the people on the panel said she has a hundred books on Amazon, and she was not elderly. I feel like she was probably one of those people that publishes six books a year or more. There was somebody today that said that they put out a book a month, but they have a collaborator, a a co-writer, and between the two of them they put out a book a month. Wow, that's cool. I guess I put out more than one podcast a month and need to consider myself successful in that. But, you know, I ain't. This was a, a really, really interesting panel they talked about the history, you know, of writing stuff like this, you know, a romance book, something like Dracula, something like Beauty and the Beast, the Cocteau version. In literature, the sirens, the the siren song, the gods, various gods, whether they were attractive or ugly, uh, and and inevitably they got to talking about the shape of water and there was one guy on the panel He just I don't want to say he erupted But he became really loud about how little he liked the shape of water and and another panelist had brought it up as a perfect example of this of his a, a, a writing about mermaids and vampires and werewolves and you know beasts the beast you know that usually at the end of a story like that the the spell is broken and the inhuman member of the relationship becomes human and this one didn't and yeah this guy he just he he was oh i i did not like that movie i and i think he he name dropped like a fairly successful well-known horror writer that he went with this guy to the screening and uh, it made him respect this guy less that that, that he liked it. And I I found that really interesting because I really reacted negatively to Shape of Water. But most people around me seemed to have thought it was really cool. And I saw it in the theater and I looked around and there weren't people getting up and walking out. People were digging it. People were seeing it as a date movie and yeah, it's the Oscars Best Picture winner that I have liked the least since Chicago. But anyhow, I don't know how I got onto that. Oh, they were talking about like, you know, where does romance come from? Obviously, you know, there is attractive, physical attractiveness, you know, being attracted to somebody physically. But if, if that's not there, what do they have in common? What could bring two people together? besides you know physical attractiveness they said maybe they don't like each other but they have a common goal something that they can work towards together and you know then somebody bends unexpectedly they said as a couple grow together they have to grow to trust each other and trust can build to betrayal which only means something when there was trust there in the first place and i thought about that and i just i think that that's probably true but it's not something that i had thought about there was a movie that my friends and i went and saw called the general's daughter years ago and the reason we saw the movie was because in the ad campaign john travolta is talking to james woods who's playing like a hannibal lecter type uh, guy with you know silver-tongued psycho and And he says, what? What are we talking about here? Murder? And James Woods goes, worse. And he goes, rape? And James Woods goes, worse. And John Travolta goes, what's worse than rape? And that's pretty much the end of the trailer. My friends and I went to see the General's Daughter to answer that question, because we had the discussion. Okay, clearly they're setting a hierarchy of wrongness, and they feel that rape is worse than murder, in which case, what is worse than rape? And the answer to that, to save you from having to see the General's Daughter, is betrayal. It was during this panel that I got the idea of Hyde and Prejudice, of Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Hyde, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, I've made it no secret how much I hate Pride and Prejudice, but I've, I've never spoken about how much I disliked The strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I've read a few classic novels that I got a great deal out of, um, but that was not one of them. And I felt like there was nothing to offer a modern audience in that book. It was so dated that it was like reading about an alien civilization to me. Now, granted, people. Seem to tell that story from time to time. They did an episode of Gilligan's Island about it. So it has to have some redeeming qualities. But I didn't see any. So yeah, I'm never going to write Hide and Prejudice. That's a joke on the title. But it is a dang good idea. If you want to write it, send it to me. I won't read it. Maybe I'll do the audio. Nope, won't do that either. Good luck with it. Gosh, I... I got this idea while the... During the panel of... Did you you guys see the remake of Clash of the Titans? It wasn't great, but I felt like it was good enough. The Clash of the Titans from my childhood, from I, I want to say nineteen eighty one, was really entertaining, and it had a great cast, and it had Ray Harryhausen's best work, and and probably the best thing in that Clash of the Titans was Ray Harryhausen's Medusa. She had this fascinating design where she had a snake body, if you recall. She was stop-motion. She had a bow and arrow. She was so, so cool. That whole sequence with Medusa was thrilling. And they did the remake of it and they set up the backstory of Medusa that she was so beautiful that she tempted one of the, the gods, the male gods, and that god's wife, who I want to say was Aphrodite, cursed Medusa, that she would be so ugly that you know any man that looked on her would turn to stone. You know this, right? I mean, you guys went out briefly in high school, or first year of college, sorry. So they set that up in the new Clash of the Titans, and then... They showed her, and they went a different way rather than aping Harryhausen's design. And it, you can see Harryhausen's design in this modern iteration of Medusa. But one thing that was really really interesting is that they had they had motion captured her, and they had hired like a European supermodel with like a perfect face to be the model for Medusa. And because of that you could see this profound beauty in the creature. I don't think that it worked nearly as well as the 1981 version did. And that goes for the whole movie. But this sequence with Medusa, there were moments where you're just like, oh my gosh, look at that face. She's a monster, but she's super beautiful. And I felt sorry for her at the end when she is killed. Because of that face, because there was such perfection in the shape of that face, she ceased to be a monster. She became a beautiful person. And, you know, it just it, it was a shame to destroy that. Whereas the creature in the 1981 film was a monster. It was a boogeyman type thing so there's no empathy there that was something that they had said in the panel is that there has to be enough humanity for you to care about the monster and i felt like the newer version made the mistake of humanizing medusa a little too much i just i i pitied her and you know giving that backstory i pitied her which is a digression and i guess that's why we've got two episodes instead of one but I was thinking about Medusa, the beautiful, horrible Medusa, and I thought, I'd like to write a story about a knight who is charged with slaying the monster woman, you know, the Medusa-type character in this in a fantasy story, and he ends up falling in love with her instead. And she knows that he's there to kill her, But something clicks between them and they decide to give it a go. That's all I have except for what the woman is. And I deliberately left that out because because I may write that one day. If I ever become a real writer, and as Stephen King said, a writer is someone who writes every day. So if I ever become a writer again, that's definitely on my list of things that I might write. I've told you that I'm not good at romance. I don't understand romance. I don't experience romance. I don't get romance. I admire it when I see it in movies, when it's well done. But it's not something that I can do well. And so maybe this story will be a good learning experience for me. One of the panelists also said that she has many male friends who write romance novels. But, of course, they write under female names. And the telling bit of that sentence was, of course. Because to me, that's not an of course. To me, that's a, really? Oh, no, that's weird. Really? They write under female names, huh? Interesting. I think that that's something to talk about. We've talked about pseudonyms before, whether they're good or bad. and. I have a pseudonym when I do adult work. And I I, I guess that's cowardly. I don't know. I did a search, an image search for that pseudonym the other day to see if it would bring my picture up. And it didn't, but it did bring up the covers of some of the audiobooks that I've done. And I, I don't know, you know why I use a pseudonym on that, right? Maybe that's dumb. I don't know. Anyway, I also went to a panel called Top 10 Writing Tips from Supernatural. And I wasn't going to go to it. I I like Supernatural a lot. And I felt like the first season was not particularly strong. There were a couple of good episodes in the first season. And part of me wants to go back, especially after this panel, part of me wants to go back and just watch it all. Um, Jeff and I would watch supernatural together and we watched it from the very first episode together and then when he went away it was sort of an unspoken agreement that we wouldn't watch supernatural anymore but you know if our paths crossed again we would take it up and so when he was visiting last june we took an afternoon and i think we watched five or six episodes of supernatural and it was the first we had watched in months and i haven't watched it since but i would like to go back and watch all the stuff that it's okay for me to watch again. I'm sorry, this is an overshare. I like the show immensely after the second season began, just like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, although I feel like Supernatural's first season was weaker than Buffy's first season. But from the very first episode of Buffy's second season, it is a different show. It is so much better. And there have been moments of... Absolute brilliance on Supernatural. Uh, And then moments where Jeff and I will become frustrated because they have to invent conflict between the brothers. And and a lot of times it feels really arbitrary and invented. But the woman that presented this, what was it? Ten writing tips from Supernatural had sat down and watched 300 episodes of the show in six months. And that was while she had a job. I think she probably just slept very, very little. Probably slept with her pants around her ankles as my roommate. Nope. I used to say that. But she wrote up a page or two of information of the lessons, of the themes, of the arcs for every episode of Supernatural that she watched. With the intention of publishing it as a book. The problem is that the show continues. It's in its 15th season. Can you imagine that? Like Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation, and Star Trek Energizer, Star Trek Enterprise, and the animated series didn't make 15 seasons put together. She said, I think, it's over a thousand pages long, the manuscript for this arcs in Supernatural. I just, I don't know if she can ever publish something like that. She needs to just say, okay, seasons one through Let's say that it goes 16 seasons and and you do seasons 1 through 8, season 9 through 16 as two different volumes. I think that would be palatable. But she had whittled down her gigantic list to 10. And she would use examples from Supernatural. And she warned us at the very beginning that, you know, if you haven't seen all 15 seasons or 14 and a half seasons or whatever it is, you know, we're going to spoil the heck out of everything. And I chose not to leave because... I know that the show is still going and that Sam and Dean are still on the show. And that's really all I need to know. Anyhow, it was really, really interesting. And there were many panels that, you know, they were only 50 minutes long, but they easily could have been two hours long. And there were a couple of panels where somebody would do a presentation and they say, I'm used to doing this in six hours and I have to do it in 45 minutes. Yeah, this one could easily have been several hours long but i know that they have supernatural conventions because i worked with an actor who was on supernatural well i was paid i didn't work i've told this story right that i was set to be the stand-in no the photo double for an actor that was on supernatural who was out of town and so they had me shave my beard they cut my hair so it was the same length as his And they dyed it gray, because his hair is graying. They dressed me in the same clothes as him, and then he showed up. He'd caught a flight and he had made it to town, and so they didn't need me anymore. But for a good long time, I talked to this guy while they were setting up the shots and stuff. And this guy was really, really interesting. But he would be what you qualify as a misogynist as somebody who possesses toxic masculinity. He was an alpha male, you know, a beer-guzzling, butt-or-bosom-grabbing, you know, construction worker that whistles at the ladies as they walk by. And I was surprised at how frank he was with a stranger. And I, I, I know I didn't talk in-depth about this when I did the episode. I think partly because I hoped that they would call me again, that I would get more work on that show and, you know, I would have more stories to tell or whatever. I did end up working one more day on the show, but I I impressed nobody. I'm not an impressive person, sadly. Anyway, he talked to me about supernatural conventions and that they have them all over the world. They'll have one in Canada, they'll have one in Japan, they'll have one in Germany, they'll have one in Norway, they'll have one in Des Moines. Oh, my lord, Des Moines. And the Winchester brothers can't go to all of them. They'll go to, like, the big ones, and, you know, maybe one of them will go to uh, the one in Japan, and one of them will go to the one in Oslo or something like that. But if you played a part on Supernatural, you are welcome to go to as many as you want to. And he, he told some stories that would straighten your hair about him taking advantage of fans of Supernatural. And uh, I was thinking, dang, this lady that did the presentation really needs to befriend or have some contact in the Supernatural fan club or whoever produces these conventions. Because she could go all over the world, well, to English-speaking countries at least, and do this, and I think people would get a hell of a lot out of it. I got a lot out of it, but, but like I said, what I wanted most out of it was to watch Supernatural again. With you. I wanted to sit on a couch and watch Supernatural with you. There's an episode of the show that I think is my favorite episode, and it's probably yours as well, and it was called What Is and What Should Never Be. And, it, well, I was going to say it's my favorite episode of Supernatural. It's the only episode... That I've ever watched twice. Because as I said, I only watched the show with Jeff and this one spoke to me a lot. It, wow, it just, it, oh my gosh, it was so good that I wanted to watch it again after it was over. I am sorry if I'm boring you. I, I, I don't mean to. The panel after that was using science fiction and fantasy tropes to your advantage. And they talked about The origin of the word trope and how the word trope has become a pejorative, synonymous with cliché. And that, it wasn't always that way, but it just, that's... I blame TV tropes, which is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. But tropes are a place to begin with your character. You know, a trope can be the theme. A trope can be a character. A trope can be a setting, a plot. For example, here's some plots that are tropes. Call to arms. The dying mentor. Save the princess. Defeat the beast. Save the world. Overthrow the unjust. A heist. They said world-building can be a trope. You know, like magic, dragons, swords, the evil empire, you know? They said a trope is not a bad thing, it's a tool. A tool can be a good thing or a bad thing. But it's good to look at your own work and say, what tropes have I put in this? Don't feel insecure about them. It's okay to have them. But like, you know, what are various tropes for fantasy? The chosen one. uh, Beautiful elves. The farm boy hero. The evil stepmother or the evil uncle. Knowing the tropes of your genre helps you know what your audience wants. In fantasy, there's a promise that the heroes will probably win. Now, if you subvert the tropes, you will upset readers. So avoid cliché by knowing your genre's tropes. And if you, you write a trope, do it well. Like, ask yourself, here's a trope that I'm tired of. How can I twist it? How can I change it? How can I tweak it so that it's, it feels fresh? You can also use a trope to make the reader assume that something is going to happen and then trick them, switch it up. That was good stuff. There were some good panels, kids, and I felt my creative energies flowing, wanting to get out there, wanting to do more. I jotted down a bunch of ideas for prompts for potential broken mirror stories. I don't know. This this was a positive experience, and now I'm sharing it with you. The next panel after that was called Start Your Creative Engines, and it was talking about creativity. You know, creativity is like a muscle. If you use it, it gets stronger. And this was one of those that I mentioned where the instructor said, usually I do this in a six-hour class. You know, it's like an employer brings me in, and I do this with the workforce for six hours. But we've got 50 minutes. She talked about to do something, a creative work, you need excitement, which is the emotional drive of doing it, You need an intention, which is the goal behind doing it, and you need an investment, which is the physical cost of doing it, which could be time, could be work. You need all three of these things to, to wholly succeed. I mean, you can do something just for money. You can do something just because you have an emotional attachment to it. She was talking about various tricks to jumpstart your creativity, to make you more creative. For example, set aside a workspace that's just for creativity, like a place where you go to write and you don't do that, you don't do other stuff there. Move your body. Exercise helps with ideas. She talked about, you know, endorphins and stuff like that. And I you know I have to agree with that. There have been many times when I and, and granted in 2018 I was not an exercise guy. But in the past, I I have been, I would go on bike rides and I would find my creative juices just flowing. I would find story ideas and things. There would be times when I would turn around and go home before my bike ride was through because I was so excited about writing. I need to do that again this year. Uh, Other things that you can do, you engage in flash fiction, you know, sit down and write a thousand word story about something. She said that there are tons of websites that will give you prompts for flash fiction and all that. And I thought about that too. I don't know that I'm going to leap on that. Not when I have all these ideas in my notebook that I came up with this weekend. And certainly not when I have a bunch of unfinished stories in my notebook. But that's something to do. You can doodle or Zentangle. And yeah, again, just like when I said I'd never heard the word clitoris. No, no, sorry, grimdark. I'd never heard the word zentangle until today. Or I guess it was yesterday. She showed us what a zentangle was, and I was just like, oh, okay, well, that, that's really interesting. I don't get it, but I, I'm willing to try it. Free thinking, free writing. I said She said, learn something new. It makes your brain grow, especially when you do something outside your comfort zone. And I was thinking of, there was a very brief period in my life when I would listen to Italian pop, uh, specifically like Eros Ramisotti. It seems like there was another guy, an Italian guy that I liked. I couldn't understand what they were saying, really, but I liked that. I, haven't, I mean, that's more than 20 years, I think, since I listened to any of that, but sorry. There's a Sting song that he does with like an Italian singer and they do it half and half in English and half in Italian. And I remember enjoying the Italian part because I felt like the lyrics in English were just too simplistic. Clearly like it had been written in Italian and the Italian writer had translated it into English as well so Sting could do half. Anyway, oh my lord, I'm sorry. She said, start a sketchbook. Describe a feeling that you have in words. Play with toys. You know, restrict yourself. Sit down and write a short story with a limited word length or limit the number of different words that you can use. She said that Dr. Seuss wrote Green Eggs and Ham as a bet. That he couldn't write a short story with using only 50 words. That is so weird. How have I never heard that? And and one activity that she said was pick a terrible idea, an idea that could never work, like hide and prejudice, I guess, and try and think of a way that that could work. These are writing exercises that I would like to try every single bloody one of them. She talked about role-playing. Play a character through a scene Doing role-playing is, is a way to jumpstart your creativity. Use counterfactual thinking. Ask what might have been. She, she put up a quote at the very end of the panel by Kurt Vonnegut. To practice any art, no matter how well or badly, is a way to make your soul grow. I don't know, that's pretty freaking great. I've never read any Vonnegut, but it makes me want to. I went to a panel called Illustrating Emotion Without Being Emo. And I, I must have been the oldest person in the room because they never felt the need to define the word emo. And, I, and that one I do know, but I mostly know it from the times when people have said that, that thing I don't like, that's emo. Like, oh, okay. Do you remember in my last podcast where I was talking about a woman added actions in to a scene that she had already written? That was from this panel. I, I wrote here, she added more. She nodded. She shook her heads to the scene and suddenly the readers felt it. It worked. There's a lot of really interesting stuff here that I'm not going to share. Okay, except for this. Quote unquote. A character's wounds are more defining than their victories. I dig that. That's really, really cool. Uh, The next panel was called Making a Protagonist Lovable. And in past years, not the first year, the first year that I went to this, I called Big Enklovich in between panels, and I said, this is awesome, dude. This is definitely where you need to be I've never called in sick at work, ever. But if you want to call in sick tomorrow from work, I will also call in sick tomorrow and we can go to this thing together, 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 together. 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 And uh, he wouldn't do it. But the next year, I did call in sick. For the very first time at work. And if you recall, I got written up for it. I got taken into the office and told to close the door. I was not long for that job after that, even though I don't feel like that was, well, it shouldn't have been a big deal. FM. Making a protagonist lovable. The reader needs to root for your character, even if he or she is flawed. Sometimes a protagonist can be a dick, but it needs to be the right kind of dick. That's quote-unquote. And everybody laughed about that, and they were saying, okay, you know, it it doesn't just work for protagonists. There are bad guys, too, that are lovable, and they brought up Loki from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and there's so many women that just love Loki. There's so many audience members that latch on to this character. And somebody shouted out, Because he's the right kind of dick. Then they, it was really weird because suddenly they took their own little detour and they all started talking on the panel about the various Avengers. Who is lovable among the Avengers and why? And one of the panelists said, I love Steve Rogers. I know there are a lot of Loki people and there are a lot of Thor people and I get that, but I love Captain America. And what's so great about Steve Rogers is that he wants to fight... The world. And there were a lot of nods on the panel at that, but not from me. I wrote it down and I'm bringing it up now because I don't get that quote at all. I don't think that Steve Rogers wants to fight the world. I feel like it's the opposite of that. Steve Rogers doesn't want to fight anybody, he's a pacifist. He's a guy that wants to work it out in a friendly way, but he's in the body of the ultimate soldier and the ultimate warrior. In Captain America Civil War, I feel like he was the rational one that was just like, let's talk this out. Let's stay on the same page. Let's maybe not. I mean, certainly by the end of that movie, he's the rational one. And Iron Man has that great quote where he recognizes that he's in the wrong or that he would be in the wrong for continuing this fight and he says those great words, I don't care. Those are some really powerful words. You know what? I'm just going to... The first panel today was called Sympathetic But Not Redeemed, Writing Complex Villains. And I feel like I'm already talking about this because we were talking about Loki, because I was talking about Captain America and and, and Iron Man, and they were antagonists in that movie to each other. And that still needs to be resolved in the next Avengers. I felt super motivated today to get in a room with Big Anklevich and Marshall Latham, a virtual room, because, you know, we live thousands of miles apart now, hundreds of miles apart. But get in a room before Avengers 4 comes out and talk about the achievement that was Avengers 3 and what it's been like to live in this world where Avengers 3 happened for a year before it is all undone, before there becomes a happy ending. And that's something that I'll need to talk to them about, is that Captain America and Iron Man have not spoken to each other since that falling out since that I don't care moment and that needs to be resolved I hope that that is resolved in an interesting emotional satisfying way because it's a cheat if we don't get that but granted it's you know three movies later for Iron Man you know six or seven movies later for the Marvel Cinematic Universe it would be totally understandable to just say well that's water under the bridge for so long ago, who cares? I hope they don't, though. Sympathetic but not redeemed, that made me think about villains. And what is the motivation of a villain? Why are the memorable villains so memorable? Why do we like villains? Why do we root for villains or at least sympathize with villains or find them so fascinating? And they were talking about how Most of the time, bad guys feel like, or everybody, not just bad guys, everybody is the hero of their own story. And that almost every single villain, 99% of villains, think of themselves as the hero, as a good guy. They they believe that they are right. And that reminded me, I really wanted to have this discussion with somebody. I I guess I did have this discussion with my cousin, but I went to a panel at a Comic-Con not a writer's conference, but, you know, a, a frivolous, let's talk about why Charmed is such a great show kind of of con. I went to a panel where they were talking about The Joker. It was a whole panel about The Joker. And I hope I haven't complained too much, because I, I don't want to be Ted McGinley here, but there have been panels that I've gone to of fandom where the people on the panel know far less about the subject than I do. And I wonder, why are they on the panel and I'm not? Uh, There was a Spider-Man one and they were talking about Spider-Man and they were getting their, their, their facts so wrong that I wondered, have you ever read a Spider-Man comic or do you only know it from the Sam Raimi movies and the ones that came after that? And it, it made me want to get on the panel because I so love Spider-Man and I, I, I love the Joker. I think that the Joker is a, fascinating cool interesting guy but they used that quote about everybody's the hero of their own story about the joker and said you know you know he thinks he's the good guy and all that stuff and i i didn't raise my hand because these guys had established that they didn't know what they were talking about for, for example at the very very beginning of the panel they said who created the joker and i raised my hand and i said bill finger and they said, well, uh, this, this page says Bob Kane created the Joker. Oh, and a guy named Bill Finger. They were just looking at the Wikipedia page. They didn't know. And so I didn't raise my hand to argue when they said that the Joker thinks that he's the good guy. I would say of every villain that I know, the only one where there's no doubt in his mind that he's the bad guy is the Joker. He is the one guy who is unique in that he sees himself as a bad guy and knows that, you know, the, the Avengers knows that the Justice League or the Batman or, you know, whoever he's fighting this this issue is a good guy. The Joker is so crazy that he's fine with that. He's fine with being called a villain as long as he's being called a super villain. And I, I understand that moral ambiguity is, is all in fashion, but, you know, the days of Magneto's group, his team calling themselves the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, is over. It's not like that anymore, you know. There, there is truth to the, the idea that the villains don't think of themselves as villains they think that the justice league is a group of... it's like the illuminati or you know how some folks think that the united nations is is a group of evilness or 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 whatever it is the girl scouts i found the villains panel interesting because it made me think of 10,000 coffins and i, I keep bringing that up but i'm so close to publishing that And during the villains panel, they said, you have to know your villain's backstory, even if you don't share it. This guy was talking about that, you know, he's got a bunch of bad guys in his epic fantasy series and a bunch of good guys. And and he's explored the backstories of all of the characters except one, where it's all a secret. He knows what the backstory is, but it's never revealed in any of the books. And he's always being asked about that character, that character is people's favorite, that character is the one that people have the questions about and wonder about the motivation of, and hey, are you ever going to let us know? And I thought about the villain in 10,000 Coffins, and do I know his backstory? And sadly, the answer was no. But I said was, because I sat down and I spent a few minutes writing down what his backstory was in this notebook. I don't think any of it's going to go into the story. I might add a couple of sentences of dialogue that sort of hint at it, but I don't don't know. I really like asking these questions. And and I've said before that, you know, I question my own ability as a writer. Am I really a writer? Abigail Hilton one, one time was telling me about her understanding of her characters and that she can tell you what their childhoods were like or what they would do in any given situation because she knows them inside and out like they are people that she knows and she asked me about that do you feel that way about any of your characters and i had to say no Uh, with the exception of ben parks who is the only character that i have written multiple stories about what four at this point that's really interesting that she knows all these details about her books I've, I've expressed my admiration for her and what she does before. But, you know, I'm, I, I'm finishing up an audiobook for her right now. Uh, and she can take any character that somebody tells her from her books and write a story where they're the main character. And, I, you know, I, I, she probably has varying results for how good a story she can come up with. But they're always interesting. There's always some new information that is conveyed. And I would not be surprised if a bunch of new fans of each of these characters is created with each story that she writes. You know, I, I have a few stories where I've considered doing follow-ups or doing sequels. And maybe I would grow to love them. And the audience, the, the readers, would grow to love them if they showed up again and again. Uh, It's just something to think about. I'm really thinking a lot about creativity, about writing, about what I want to be when I grow up. At one of the panels today, somebody said, how many in this room want to be a writer when they grow up? And I raised my hand with no hesitation, but I noticed that most of the old people in the audience didn't raise their hand. They assumed that he was asking the children, the teenagers, and he sort of joked about that, that, you know, he still makes fart jokes. And his wife has decided that he hasn't grown up yet either. I don't know. Some cool, cool stuff today, as as I keep saying. I pity the fool who has to edit these episodes. There was a keynote speaker from a writer of children's books. Maybe middle grade. I don't know what the difference is. You do, but don't tell me. Keep me in the dark. And she didn't talk anything about children's books. She talked about what influenced her to be a storyteller. And it was remarkable because she talked about encountering this old man and he had this peculiar habit, hobby, not habit. And he shared this hobby with her before he died. He was an influence. And then she told, I kid you not, three separate ghost stories in her life. Encountering ghosts, there being a ghost in the basement, there being a ghost in the spare room when she was a child, or no, it was in the furnace room, there being a ghost next door. She told these in detail, and one of these stories was so emotional and uh, surprising that, that she cried, and I found tears running down my face as well. And it made me wonder if it would be interesting to just turn on a camera and tell a story on video with like no cuts, just the way that she did. She was telling this story about when she was young, newly married, new, moved into a house in like Portland or something. And it was riveting. And, and you know, I, I don't have ghost stories, I, I, I don't suppose. But I just, it made me think, maybe I'll do that. And I'll put that on Patreon, put that on YouTube or something like that. Get lots of dislikes. Now I'd actually have to have views to get dislikes. People are really interesting. Everybody's got a story to tell. You hear that a lot, but I, I really believe it. I, I think that maybe I could have been a creative writing teacher or one of those people that goes to schools and gives presentations. On the very first day, and I didn't share it because it's not in my notes, but on the first day, the guy that gave the two-hour presentation said that he goes to schools, like high schools, And he says, you know, how many of you in this room write, like to write? And he says, you know, in a a room full of teenagers, there's usually about 11 or 12 that will raise their hand. And he always draws attention to them and says, for the rest of you, I want you to look at these 12 people and know that the entertainment that you consume for the rest of your lives are going to be created by these 12 people, and how special that is. He said, you know, anybody can go to medical school and become a doctor. Anybody can go to law school and become a lawyer. But writers are born writers. Which is probably not true, but it's a kind of of pat-yourself-on-the-back rhetoric that I like, that feels good to hear. The, the, the panel after that was called Rewriting with the Door Open, How to Revise. And I guess that that is, is taken from a Stephen King quote. And I didn't know that. The Stephen King quote goes, write with the door closed, rewrite with the door open. In other words, you just go somewhere and write your first draft without interruption, without other people's input, without somebody giving you notes while you're going. Then once the first draft is done, then hand it to people and get their notes, get their corrections, get their suggestions, their recommendations, their criticisms, and take them to heart. I think that that's what he was saying. Big and I always intended to reread On Writing, King's book from 99 or 2000, and we never did. And so he grabbed the audiobook the other day and said, You know, I, I'm going to start the audiobook. And I, I probably ought to as well. I just don't have the audiobook. I do have the book. It came out in hardcover. And so I bought it, knowing that Big and I had this challenge. But my guess is that Right With the Door Closed, Revise With the Door Open is from that book. The keynote speaker talked about the first stories that she wrote being terrible and you as in the audience will never ever read those and she wrote as i I quote you have to spend a lot of time writing really terrible fiction welcome to being a writer oh okay uh, see this this story is is why i wanted to to talk to you guys there was a a panel And the reason I went to it, it was all about beats and microbeats. It was all about pacing. And the reason I went to it was because she said in her description of the panel, it's easier to show examples from films than to try to explain it using only words. And so it was going to be a visual presentation. And so I went to it, and this was one of those where uh, it was standing room only. It was hard to find a seat when I went in, but there was a, a guy, I asked him, is anybody sitting in that seat next to you? And he said no. And so I sat down, but the lady that was on the, the other side of the empty seat, she responded badly when I sat down. And I said, oh, is somebody else, Was were you saving the, And she's like, well, doesn't matter, you know. And I guess by that, I'm just telling you, that it was full it was completely full and unfortunately it was one of two panels where people had to be told to leave you know we can't have people blocking the walls We'd fire code sorry you'll have to find another panel so this was an entirely filled room it was one of those where like somebody would come through and say hey if there's an empty seat next to you raise your hand and they, that's how many people they could let get in Suddenly I'm getting flashbacks to the last time I went to San Diego Comic-Con and what a terrible experience that was. Mistakes were made, kids. So this was going to be a visual presentation on something called Beats and microbeats, And they had a projector attached to her laptop and it wasn't working. And she said, well, you know, I've, I've mentioned that uh, it's not working and we're going to get somebody in here to fix it. They said they would fix it, but, you know, it's time for the panel to start. And darn it, I thought that this was going to be an hour long panel. It turns out it's only 50 minutes and now we're a minute into it. And instead of just being able to show you the clips, we have to wait for this guy to fix it. Let me explain to you what beats and microbeats are and the importance of pacing in your writing Normally, I would show these, these clips, and the first one is from Mad Max, and let me just describe it to you, and so she described this scene from Mad Max from the very beginning of Fury Road, and uh, it made me want to watch Fury Road again, and she described it and, and said, you know, if, if we could watch the clip, you would see that the pacing speeds up, and then it slows down, and then at one point it stops to show you how important what you're seeing is, you know, the, the effect that it has on, on Max. And still the guy hadn't gotten there. And I could see as the time went by and she kept glancing at her her laptop that she was getting flustered and embarrassed. And I felt for her. And she's like, okay, so the second clip is, is from The Lord of the Rings. And it's... Now this one is really really good because it's it starts out slow and then gets faster and faster and faster and then it slows way down i mean it practically stops it goes so slow and then it goes fast again <sighs> eventually this guy got in there with a new projector and i know that this guy worked his butt off to get her a new projector and, and a screen for the projector because he did he got the screen first and then the projector didn't work because he was sweating. You could see the sweat running down his forehead as he came in, you know. So I knew that he had ran to get the projector and ran to bring it to us, but the damage had been done. You know, we were about 15 minutes into the panel and she hadn't shown any of her clips. So the guy hooks up the laptop and starts the first clip, the uh, Mad Max one, and there's no sound. I could tell that she was, you know, she had felt relief when it, it got working and then the relief is gone when there's no sound. But she made do. She tried to explain that, that this is visual. That the reason that it was movie clips is so that we could watch it visually. Uh, the guy went off to get her a microphone that she could put by the little tiny speaker in her laptop so that we could hear something. And it wasn't optimal, but, but we watched the Mad Max one and it was awesome. And we watched the one from Fellowship of the Ring, and it was amazing. And and what she did during that was she was trying to show you how the pacing was. And so she would clap her hands to show. And then as it got faster, she would clap faster. And then, you know, when when Aragorn is fighting a shitload of orcs, she's going faster and faster and faster. I think they were urukai, And then Merry and Pippin see Frodo, and they're calling to Frodo, and Frodo won't go to them. And then the narrative just stops and it focuses on Frodo and he realizes you know, that he's putting them in danger by staying with them or that the ring is corrupting or whatever Frodo's motivation is and that he has to leave the fellowship and go off on his own. And there's a moment where Pippin doesn't get what Frodo's doing and he asks and Merry says he's leaving. And they make this choice to distract the Urukai and get them to go after them so that frodo can get away and i gotta tell you with no sound it made you focus all the more it made you concentrate on it harder that was really cool Uh, eventually the microphone did get in there and we watched a clip from the matrix a lengthy clip from the unfortunately no one can be told what the matrix is You have to experience it for yourself. And she was explaining how, with the length of shots, with how long it takes somebody to do their dialogue, with the action that the actors are doing when they're not speaking, it increases tension, and it also makes the audience focus on what they want you to focus on. She showed a romantic scene from a movie, and she said... If a romantic scene, or a battle scene for that matter, is not working or lacking punch, odds are that you rushed it. It doesn't hurt to write movement, motion, expression, mannerisms, people's posture, what their eyes are doing, pausing into dialogue scenes. I dug it. And I dug the panel after that. It was on horror. They were talking about setups and payoffs. They said fear is an anticipatory event, not the event itself. The guy on the panel referred to the the famous quote by Alfred Hitchcock of, you know, you can have a scene where a couple is in a restaurant and they're having a conversation, and boom, 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 a bomb explodes under the table and it startles the audience. And that's one way to go about a scene like that, but a better way is to establish the bomb first, to show that there's a bomb ticking under the table, and then run the scene. And you can have the exact same dialogue, and the exact same interaction between the man and the woman, but the audience knows there's a bomb there, and it becomes scary, it becomes tense. It changes the perception of the scene, and you get a much greater Reward than just the scare, the jump scare of boom. Boom, boom, boom boom He told it wrong, but that doesn't mean that the audience didn't get it. They, they were talking about horror, that if you're writing good horror, the horrified character in the book should be the reader. You know, it doesn't matter if everybody in the book is terrified, if the reader isn't scared. You know, some some interesting stuff. I want to say that I'm almost out of time, but I I don't know. I I feel like I've probably gone way, way, way too long. But hopefully some of this is interesting to you. Now, in the first episode, I said that there weren't any panels that I went to that were just about fandom or about... Let's talk about Buck Rogers, something that we find interesting for an hour. But that's not true. There was a panel today about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I only went to it because I know so little about it, but I'm a history buff and I find the Cuban Missile Crisis fascinating. And this panel was super fascinating. They talked about the events leading up to the crisis and they talked about the Russian perspective and they talked about how badly everything went You know, the mistakes that had to be made to get us to the brink of war. And then they talked about how it was avoided. And I found that really fascinating. I wasn't alive in 1962. And I never heard about the Cuban Missile Crisis growing up. Nobody ever talked about that in elementary school or high school. It was adulthood when I found out about it. And even then, it wasn't in as much detail as this panel today. But hearing how close we came to the end, and they gave two or three chilling examples of how we were so close on the brink, but somebody chose to defy orders or somebody chose to break protocol or somebody just chose to let it go so that we didn't go to war. And the guy that spoke the most is a history professor who has written a book on The Cuban Missile Crisis, and it's an alternate history where one little event, one tiny detail of the story changes. And it happens. World War III happens. And he had some awesome, fascinating insights. He spoke a lot like my dad did. There was a word that he kept using that my dad would use, just the way that he would say it. And he said, nuclear, nuclear a bunch of times. Instead of nuclear, as we say it now, I don't know, there was kind of a folksy likability to this guy. And he said that John Kennedy was a mediocre president. He was carousing. He didn't stand out in any area except for, you know, who he slept with. And then the Cuban missile crisis happens. And in 13 days, he cements himself in history as one of our great presidents. I thought that that was really interesting. It made me Want to look at Kennedy again through that prism? There was a panel about working with a cover artist that I went to. There, there were some writing panels at the same time, and I chose to go to the cover artist one because I felt like you know that's something that I hate doing the covers. I hate it the same way that that one guy hated writing, but felt like okay, it was a it was a necessity. You know, the the woman that wants to write YA. Because sex is such a filthy, demeaning thing. You know, that's what writing is for that guy. And that's what cover art is for me. So I went to this panel and it was interesting. There was a publisher that was on the panel. And he arranged for the cover art for the books in his imprint. There was a painter who did traditional fantasy or horror paintings. There was a woman who does you know photoshop type cover art taking pictures and mixing and matching this and and that and then there was a a writer who had published several books and he he had had various control over the cover art so i feel like they really ran the spectrum of of people that you would want on a panel like this and so they talked about that about what cover art was supposed to do you know It's supposed to make it stand out from the pack. It's supposed to make somebody pick up your book rather than somebody else's book. It's supposed to make somebody want to read the book over somebody else's book. They talked a little bit about the text on the cover, but they said such simplistic stuff as you don't want, like, gothic or or science fiction lettering on a romance book, or you don't want flowery calligraphy on a sci-fi book. But what I was fascinated about was the process, especially for the painter, the guy that does these big paintings. And he said that his prices range from about $2,000 to $7,000 a cover, and that he always requests the manuscript and he reads the book before he does his covers. And what he does is when he gets to a part in the book that he thinks that could be visually interesting, he'll do a sketch sketch just right there on the manuscript. And then, you know, when he gets to the end of the book, he'll look at the sketches that he's done. And he says, you know, usually he does 8 to 10 to 12, you know. What would be most visually interesting and what would epitomize the book the best? You know, if there's a really good description of our hero on, you know, page 47 or whatever, that could be the image that we want for the cover. He said, if there's a monster in a fantasy book or a horror book, that's what you want on the cover. He doesn't try to depict a scene exactly as it is in the book, but he wants to convey the feel of the book. And and I I would have been happy to just listen to the one guy talk because he was an older guy. You could tell that he'd been in the business a long time, was set in his ways and was probably toward the end of his career. And maybe toward the end of your career, you know, when you can ask five grand a cover or whatever, that that's pretty great, right? But there's so much money out there, maybe not in publishing, maybe not in indie publishing, maybe not in traditional publishing. But there's so much money out there in, in film, in video games, in television. I asked him about that, though. I They were going to open it up for questions at the end, but I just kept raising my hand. And I said, well, well, like, what input does the writer have? Do, do they recommend? Hey, this is what I, you know, or here's a sketch of what I would like for a cover because I'm honestly curious what real writers do. I sometimes have an idea of what I want the cover to look like. And I'm not capable of depicting that in a satisfying way and certainly not in a way where you would buy the book. But if I could talk to an artist who's good and willing, it seems to me that that could work the best. Like when I was working with Austin for the cover of Newfound Fame, I had this idea of a t-shirt that said, I survived the brown depths. Will you? When I came up with that idea in the story that this guy would go to a convention and they were selling t-shirts that said, I survived the brown depths, will you? That's the cover that I had in my head is this t-shirt like in a swamp floating in water. I, I can't always visualize what kind of cover that I want. All I know is I, I'm looking right now on my computer at covers that I have mocked up myself and the vast majority are are really bad. Oh my goodness, they are really, really bad. Office visit, I'm looking at my cover for Office Visit and it's just, ugh. But what can I do? I, I, I'm not capable of doing what I want to do. But I like the idea of sending a sketch to this artist and say, hey, this is what I have in mind. And then, you know, maybe he sketches a more professional version of it and sends that back. And he's like, like this? And I go, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, change this little thing a little bit. That back and forth in my mind seems the best of both worlds. You know, it's better than my drawing ability. Uh, But it's still what I have in mind. But then there are stories where I, I don't know what the cover should look like. And that's hard, You know, sometimes they'll come out fine, really. Like, I I did a cover for Stormy Weather that I think looks fine. I did a cover for Romantic Interlude, which looks fine. The cover for uh, Encounter in Hall... Is it B? Occurrence in Hall B, where I had my friend's son, who the story is about, take a picture at work. I feel like that one works, even though it doesn't look anything like the hall looked in my head when I wrote the story. It doesn't look like what I described. I was describing the, the hall of the college where I went to school, where he worked as a janitor, and yet this picture is not that. But, uh, the cover art is still this huge stumbling block for me. <laughs> oh gosh, I've got to share this with you. Somebody raised their hand and said... Well, where online, where, where do you go to find cover art that you can use for your work? And the editor said, well, you need, you need to go to Diagon And I, and the people around me wrote this down. And he said, I, I was joking. That's, there's this, this place in Harry Potter. None, of, none of you have, but we had all written it down. So it wasn't a very good joke, I guess. I use cover art, or lack thereof, as an excuse not to put my work out there. And I've mentioned 10,000 Coffins a bunch of times. And I worry that when I finish the audio for that, I will use the fact that I don't have cover art as an excuse not to put it out there. And that sucks. I guess I've said this seven or eight times. It is a fear that I have. I'll just put it out with no friggin' cover art. There was a girl that raised her hand, and she seemed really young, like high school age. And she said, well, I'm an artist. And along the lines of what he asked, referring to me asking the guy what input he gets, she says, along the lines of what he said, I'm an artist, but how do I find writers that want cover art? you know, how do I find somebody that's a good match for me? And that was an interesting question and, and you know, they said um, you go on uh, one of these places like something called Fiverr, something called Artists and Clients, bookcovercreator.com, DeviantArt, you know, that sort of stuff. said there are job boards on DeviantArt uh, where you can go and there are people looking for cover art and you see if you can find yourself a good fit. And I was as extroverted as I am capable. And I approached her at the end of the panel and I said, I'm a, I'm a writer and I never have cover art. Is there a place where I could see some of your work and maybe there's something we could collaborate on? And again, well, I need to be careful in how I phrase this. Again, I thought she was a high school student. She was definitely young. So I assumed that she was hungry and would be somebody that would be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Just let me show you, you know, some of the stuff that I have a website and you can go there and just tell me what you want to draw. That would be great. But no, she directed me to her booth at Artist's Alley at this convention where she had her art for sale so that I could see what some of it was and. She said, I charged about $35 for a cover, and uh, yeah, if you want to look through some of this, you can see what you have that might fit my art style, and that really surprised me. I mean, she had her head firmly on her shoulders, at, and let's say that she was she was just young-looking, like me, and that she was 20. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 20, and I certainly wouldn't put myself out there and say, oh, I charge money for this and if you'd like to buy an art print it costs x number of dollars that impressed me what didn't impress me i I mentioned the most extroverted that i got embarrassingly i want to share this story with you i ran into the woman that i went to school with that got me into this whole conference mentality for four years now and she said hey I, i want you to come to a panel at four o'clock with a bunch of people talking about comedy writing. And I want to introduce you to everybody on the panel because I think you would fit in with them really, really well. I think that maybe you could network with them. You could get some work that way or they, they could brainstorm or, you know, collaboration on stuff. And they'd see just, you know, what a great writer I say you are. I assume you're still writing. I mean, you were such a great writer in college, and I, I assume you've, if you've stuck with it, you're even better now. And I was like, well, I don't know, I do, I do still write. And she says, I'll introduce you to my husband, and he going out to dinner with everybody on the panel. I'll pressure him to ask if if his friend Rish can go with them, and that way you can have all this networking. I was like, I don't know if your husband remembers me. And she's like, oh, okay, well my husband's over here let's go talk to him and and he didn't remember me he said "Wow, my wife talks endlessly about you she said that you were the best writer at the whole school and that your stuff was awesome And it's all these years later and she still talks about you yeah yeah if you want i can have you go out to lunch with the panelists and, and we can all chat and and you can get to know them and i was like wow that's that's really nice of you the whole time i'm just like i don't this is not for me i'm uh and i didn't go to that panel the comedy panel and i didn't meet with them and when i got home there was a message on facebook from her saying hey we have still haven't seen you we're about to leave for the restaurant get over here if you can and i felt like a heel and a bit of a coward because i didn't forget about that panel. I chose to go to something else. I chose not to go to that. I didn't wanna put myself out there and I didn't want to have there be an awkward situation. I guess that makes me terrible. <sighs> I'm sorry. I don't, I don't imagine that you got as much out of this as I have, but it made me wanna write. It made me wanna write every day. It made me want to publish a little bit more. It made me want to do cover art. It made me want to sit down and podcast with Marshall and Big. It made me want to finish my audiobook and go on to another one. It made me even want to go on to Audible and maybe audition for some other book because I was just so caught up in storytelling and being creative and being around people that are creative. And like I said, I, I I thought about setting up my camera and telling a story on camera for you or for YouTube. I don't know how long this feeling of ambition, this feeling of excitement will last, but I love that. I got something out of this conference and, um, I most definitely will go again next year. And I, I, it makes me want to go to more. Uh, I, I mentioned, and I don't remember where, I, I mentioned it on Patreon that there was a booth and they have a contest and it's horror stories that take place in a certain region with a certain premise. And I went and I, up to the guy today and I talked to him about it and I said, I'm going to enter that. Even though I haven't started the story And I only have a vague idea of the story. I've talked a little bit about it in the uh, Drive Like Wildfire episode. But I'm going to do that. And yeah, if the dang library hadn't been closed, I would have written some today. It's pretty late. I've been doing this for three, more than three hours. Jeez. But I think I could probably still fit in a little bit of writing. And that's what a writer does. A writer writes. A writer reads. And that's what I am a writer doesn't mean I'm a good one but still take my hand and we're halfway there I have been wish out for you and thank you for listening if you listened all the way through here you're breathing rarefied air my friend and you are my friend thanks this is fake Arnold Schwarzenegger normally Uh, Fake Sean Connery handles the uh, license part of our show, but Rish told him he couldn't do it after saying that Rish Outfield should be released under a Creative Commons license because he is also free and no one could sell him and no one would take credit for him, not even his own mother. And say, Arnold, what are you doing? He uh, also changed the uh, attribution to uh, masturbation. Dude, I told him he couldn't do it, so he wouldn't say those cruel and true things about me. Well, he didn't. Oh, and instead of share alike, he said share look alike. Thank you, fake Arnold. So the Rish Outcast uh, is released under Creative Commons uh, attribution 3.0, um, a share-alike license. Uh, you cannot sell it or claim it as your own, but you can download it and uh, share look alike it if you want to. Okay, that's enough. How did I do? Pretty good, actually. You know, fake Arnold, looking in your eyes, I see a paradise. This world that I found is too good to be true. Standing here beside you, want so much to give you. This love in my heart that I'm feeling for you. Let them say we're crazy. I don't care about that. Put your hand in my hand, baby, don't ever look back Let the world around us just fall apart Fiction, we can make it if we're heart to heart And we can build this dream together Standing strong forever is gonna, gonna stop, stop, us stop us now And if this, this world runs, runs out of lovers love We'll still have each other Nothing's gonna stop us Nothing's gonna stop us Now I'm so glad I found you I'm not gonna lose you Whatever it takes I will stay here with you I'll take you to the good times I'll see you through the bad times Whatever it takes is what I'm gonna do. Let them say we're crazy. What do they know? Put your arms around me, baby. Don't ever let go. Let the world around us just fall apart. Baby, we can make it if we're hard to hard. And we can build this dream together Standing strong forever Nothing's gonna stop us now
1: And And if this this world runs out of lovers lovers, We'll we'll still still have each each other
0: Nothing's gonna stop us Nothing's gonna stop us us. All that I dream is you all that I ever need and all that I want to do is, is hold, hold you forever, forever and ever. Hey. So fake Sean, this was used in the movie in the 1980s. There was a woman and she was not really a woman, she was she was sort of a doll like that sells merchandise in the store. And she had a spell on her so she would magically come to life. But sometimes she is a doll, and other times she's like a real woman with bosoms. But whenever somebody comes around, she's like a hard doll. So like a, like a mannequin. It, it, sort of. And we can build this dream together, standing strong forever. Nothing's gonna stop us now. And if this world runs out of lovers, we'll We'll still have each other, nothing's gonna stop us, nothing's gonna stop us. We'll this drink together, standing strong forever, nothing's gonna stop us now. And if nothing's this world runs us out, us out love of lovers, we'll still have each other, each other. No, nothing's gonna, gonna stop us. Stop us. us. Nothing's gonna stop us, Still this dream together, and hey, stand and strong oh, forever. Nothing's gonna stop us now, nothing's gonna and if this world runs out of lovers, hey, hey, we'll, we'll still ooh, have each other. Nothing, no, nothing's no, gonna no, stop no. us, nothing's gonna stop us the Yeah 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 Wow you really held that a long long time that's what you said hmm. Well yes I, I never understand that I said it Right I told you about the lady that said that she had some male friends that wrote romance, but of course they did it under a pseudonym. And the thing that was remarkable about that, I mean, the the pseudonym thing, I guess that's interesting, but the it was the of course bit where, I mean, it's such a given that they write it under a pseudonym that, you know, you don't even need to discuss that. And in all that we hear about how The scales in the world are so unjustly tipped toward men, it's remarkable that there would be an of course attached to what she just said. Whereas I think you could sit down with a bunch of writers or readers and do an entire podcast about that, about the whys and the advantages and disadvantages of a female name versus... I don't know that that's an of course. I would really enjoy listening to some people talk about sales and the book's reception, depending on whether they believe that it's written by a man or a woman. I don't care about that. Put your hand in my hand, baby. Don't ever look back. I fucked it up. Let the world around us. I don't know. I I talked about the panel with the guy who was, you know, super into outlining. But there was a second panel that I went to that was not far off called Obsessive Outlining. And she talked about, you know, doing a four-step outline. And each step is more involved, more detailed, more fleshed out. The first step, the first outline is just for brainstorming. The second outline was for plot beats. The third was, you know, for all the, the arcs, like character arcs, plot points. She said that she will color code all of the arcs and plot points depending on which character they are pertaining to, and that helps her. And then the fourth was, you know, she just expands all of it, gives it details, uh, determines the point of views, the character motivations. And she said, once she has this full outline done, then she starts writing. She can sit down and and start writing the book proper. And she tends to write about a thousand to two thousand words an hour when she does that, when she has it all in her head or in front of her. And that was super impressive because you talk to a lot of writers or listen to a lot of writers that are on an imitatable level. And they'll talk about, you know, I make sure that I write a thousand or two thousand words a day. That's a day, and and that that was impressive to me. And I went to two panels that were sort of similar to that. Maybe I could have skipped one of them, but I didn't. Is hold you forever, forever and ever. Oh, hey, sorry. Did I already say that stuff that I'm generous? Here's some extra, extra stuff. There was a writer uh, on one of the horror panels where he talked about how much it vexed his mom, that he wanted to be a horror writer, or, you know, the things that he drew, the things that he would read, the music that he would listen to, the things that interested him as a child would upset his mother, all the way up to the football team that he followed. And he said that his mom at one point sat him down and said, why can't you be a fan of the Miami Dolphins, son? And yeah, just in case Big Anklevich is listening, that was for you. Let them say we're crazy. What do they know? Put your arms around me, Arnold. Don't ever let go. I fucked it up again. All right, I'm going to let you go. I should have let you go a long time ago. I wish I could quit you. See ya.